Hi there, I'm your host, Kieran Kurtala. Welcome to Eliminate Higher Education Podcast. In our previous episodes, um, we have featured some panel discussions from a conference called N Squared in Atlanta, Georgia in February, 2022. This episode is particularly funny and interesting for me because I had a fireside chat with Jordan Shapiro, author of New Childhood and Father Figure, two amazing books that take on the norms of heteronormative cisgender civilization that we currently have and uh, kind of turn it on its head and say whether technology is a power for good or something that we have to accept as our status quo or the father figure concept that we all grew up in is any relevant anymore and how we can adapt to these changing times. So on this fireside chat, uh, I have some interesting questions to Jordan and uh, Jordan in his usual way expands in a very natural and funny way. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you. All right. Who's ready for some fireside chat here? See, we have our own fireplace. I can feel the warmth. What about you, Jordan? It's very warm. Yeah, maybe tune down the fire a little bit. Just kidding. All right, well, I have a very, very exciting guest here, uh, Jordan Shapiro. He has two books, uh, The New Childhood and The Father Figure. Um, and uh, it's an amazing discussion. It's very relevant to where we are uh, post-COVID because in a lot of ways, the New Childhood talks about um, what the role of technology is in higher education or K through 20 education in general. And obviously, Father Figure is very personal to me as well. And we'll get into all of that uh, in the next few minutes. But Jordan, welcome to N Squared. It's, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> cool. So let's start with um, our your first book, New Childhood, because in a lot of ways, in that book, you made a lot of assumptions, predictions, or uh, plans on what a perfect campus or college should look like. How did that assumption or prediction change with respect, as a result of COVID? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I don't know that much changed. You know, I think many of the things that I was writing about in the new childhood were based on, I mean, one, it was based on visiting schools all over the world. It was based on, on really learning from a lot of um, uh, tech developers in the education space, and of course, some from my own, my own teaching. Uh, and what I was looking at was, was, was how we have to change the way we think about not just what a campus is, not just what a curriculum is, not just what pedagogy is, but what is the difference in how we want to, um, you know, that what, what we want kids to learn in, in a different context, because technology is not just changing how we deliver education, but also what we're educating. Um, and I wanted to, to ask those two questions together because it seemed like most people were either asking, how do we do tech literacy, for lack of a better word, and teach kids about technology, or how do we use technology to just teach? And, and, and there, there was an, it wasn't integrated. And I don't, you know, if anything's changed because of COVID, it's the, and, and, and a few speakers speakers have said this, it's that we, we accelerated the pace um, um, of where I, where I think we were always going um, for, a, for a variety of reasons, um, and in some cases good for good, for good and for bad. Um, you know, for example, I think 
the pace has accelerated somewhat, as someone was saying earlier, just because people just saw what was possible. There was so much resistance, so much prejudice that made people go, oh, I don't want tech in education for no reason, right? And, and then they had no choice, they saw it, now they've, now, now, now they've realized there's a lot of possibility that some of us all, were always talking about. Um, on the other hand, I think we also did a lot in, 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 in COVID lockdown that was sort of hasty emergency, uh, uh, you know, an emergency way to deal with educate, you know, the lack of school presence, um, and in some cases did it really badly um, and, and made, and, and, and I'm not judging anyone for that because it was an impossible situation, um, but, but in many cases I think that that has left a, 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 a problematic taste in some people's mouth about it. You know, I think we've made a lot of assumptions about what school presence, you know, the value of being present in a school building that is not backed up by research yet, but now we take for granted. Um, um, and I'm not trying, you know, I'm not arguing that we, that it's wrong. I'm just saying it's not, it's not proven yet. It's just, we've all decided it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I think uh, one of the things about the new childhood book is in the first few chapters, uh, Jordan talks about why there's a lot of resistance where there were signs in on campus saying no mobile phones allowed, no technology and allowed because they saw technology as a deterrent. And now in the post-COVID world, we are more into hybrid classrooms, Zoom classrooms, and there's a lot of balance that comes along with it where now I feel like we are into too much technology in the classrooms. Is there a balance between where technology is stronger, where interpersonal communication is stronger? Like, is there a balance that institutions or educators or teachers should think about? I mean, I, th I think yes. Um, you know, to, to, to some extent, as, as a college professor myself, um, uh, who teaches both in the in the classroom and 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 online, um, I rarely have technology in the actual classroom. Um, that doesn't mean I don't use technology with the students. Um, it doesn't mean I don't. You know, I've always I've been doing something hybrid for almost a decade now um, um, in terms of, you know, what we used to call blended uh, uh, learning. Um, um, but in the classroom, I don't know that it's necessarily better. I could, it's different and I don't see much need if I have the ability to stand, to sit in a, in a room full of people and look them in the eye to use many other tools. There's certainly a lot of potential assessment tools that I, I, I wish that were better integrated because they could, they could help. Um, but I, I think they're, they're, you know, when I'm in person, I want to do that the best that I can. And when I'm online, I want to do that the best that I can. And I think they do different things. I think it really depends, the balance depends on what you're teaching and what your goals are. Um, and, and I don't think they both do the same thing. I think that, that they do different things and sometimes, um, sometimes we need one and sometimes we need another and sometimes we lose something from online and sometimes we lose something from in person. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I think there's a lot of constant balancing act. That's why I think in a lot of ways uh, when institutions say stuff like, well, we are going to only do remote only classrooms, it loses that in-person in, in experience that comes along with body language, listening to the students and, and the vice versa. And also that same goes along with saying we're only going to have in-person classrooms using the technology 
where it's relevant is important, but the question is who makes those decisions? Is that the VP of enrollment or the associate dean or the university president or individual instructor? Well, that's a that, you know that's a really 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 complicated question because you know that depends on so many other factors besides just what's in what's in the best interest of learning. Um, um, you know, there, there's there's the the instructor in me wants to wants to say that it should really be the instructor that makes that decision. I'm not sure that's the right answer, but I am an instructor, so I I certainly guard my own uh, my my own ability to do that. Um, I I've always had a, 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 a you know I'm also a philosophy professor, so I have a very um, old-fashioned notion of what it means to teach, um, and I, I've always objected to the idea that we have, you know, learning designers and subject matter ex, uh, experts. I sort of think that those, the, that distinction is is problematic in some ways. Um, that we're off, you know, when I'm teaching someone, I'm teaching them how to think in certain ways, um, and I don't know why you would think that someone who can't think in those ways would be able to design the curriculum that teaches someone to think in those ways. You know, it, it, so there's a, there's a sort of inherent problem in that question, but then again, there's the political realities, and I mean, I mean political in terms of institutional politics, not in terms of governmental politics, where you do have to ask questions about enrollment, and we do have to ask questions about, I mean, then there's also the large national or global economic questions about, uh, about how do we think about what's the best way to build a workforce, right? I mean, there's so, it gets so, it's never so simple. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is, you know, instructor, I have one opinion. As somebody who thinks about large global issues, I have a different opinion. And probably as a parent, I haven't had to deal with it yet with my kids, but probably as a parent, I'd have a different, uh, a different uh, answer to that. <laughs> yeah, I like that you have a nuanced opinion about these things, because anytime you think in a binary ways, whether this or that, whether it's about the classrooms or online, you have to look at series of different choices yeah. and make a decision. But I want to kind of see if, what you think about, especially in the new childhood, you talk about this hyper-connected world we live in where learning as it's designed is like a file cabinet where you're building, you know, Math 101 becomes Math 102, Math 102 becomes Math 301, and you're, you're going from one step to another. But if you think about how our kids are learning these days using TikTok, for that matter. If, if somebody wants to go to making an omelet, they're not going to, you know, omelet 101 and crack an egg, omelet 102, put a, fry the pan. They're going straight to a video that connects them to another video, and in within 10 minutes, they become expert in making, let's say, a Brazilian omelet. How are we reconciling this difference in how kids are actually learning these days using the power of TikTok, YouTube, and other tools when compared to the classroom instruction. Okay, I think I have three things. I'll probably forget what they all are by the time I get to the end of the answer. But let me start with, first, I got to challenge you because I have teenagers at home who think because they watched one TikTok video, they're an expert. So <laughs> you don't learn how to be an expert by watching a TikTok video, um, even on making an omelet. <laughs> but you do might learn how to make a basic omelet uh, from watching a TikTok video. But the larger question you're asking, which I think you and I agree on the answer here, which is, is the, the file cabinet um, metaphor that I used in the new childhood. The reason I did it, I was sort of challenging 
the, the, the normal t conversation we always get is that we've been in the industrial model of education for 100 years and nothing's changed. And I, it's just wrong, right? Like, so much has changed. Yes, there's some things that have stayed the same, but a lot of things has cha have changed. My child's education looks nothing like my education, and that's just one generation, a gigantic change. So I wanted to come up with other ways to talk about the things that needed to change that didn't make this blanket assumption that was just wrong. Right? I should use just another example besides just my child, right? Like every kindergarten classroom now has circle time. That wasn't true one generation ago, right? So that was a that was a huge that was a huge change that happened in how we started to think about what was in the best interest of child development. Um, but I brought up the file cabinet thing because you know I noticed that so much of the way we designed, especially higher ed was based on the information management system of the early 20th century, right? Why do we schedule the way we schedule? Because it had to fit on cards, right? Why do we have report cards? Because they had to actually fit into the, I forget what it's called, the, a certain brand of file cabinet, right? That was, that was why we even think of them as report cards. Why do we do credit hours? Because it was the easiest way to schedule. Now we have computers that can use AI to schedule down to the second. There's no reason we even need to think about it in terms of periods, in terms of credit hours. You know, we, there's so many new ways we could think, and that's what I was really getting at in that section was going, you know, what is the information management paradigm that we're currently living in, and how do we get people prepared to succeed within that information, that information management paradigm, right? It makes perfect sense to teach 101, 102 if you live in a paradigm where you're gonna have to put things in file cabinets, right? Which I'm guessing almost just looking around at the age of people that almost everyone here at some point had to do the job where paper file and, and I mean, we still, I still use folders at home, which I sometimes go, why do I even still have a file cabinet? Um, but we do, right? Um, and we learned how to think in that way that divides things that way. And I don't just mean in terms of managing our grades or our ideas. We, we, we learned to organize the way we thought about everything in the world into these kinds of categories that sort of mimicked the, the that were sort of mimicked the image of of that information management system. The question here isn't just what do we have to change, it's how do we prepare a generation of kids that can think in the current information management uh, um, metaphors, right? How, they have to be able to do that to succeed. It's not as, you know, knowledge is not ever outside of context. Ideas are not, never not situated in history. They're never outside of the economic and technological paradigm. So to, to me, the question was always and continues to be, how do I prepare my kids, and you use the connected world, you know, we, it's a connected world, and a, a shot, not just technology, that's not just, you know, I fought with my publisher because they wanted to say a digitally connected wor world on the cover, and I was like, nope, it's gotta be connected. Why is it connected? It's connected because right now we're all sitting here going, wait, what's gonna happen to our lives because of the attack in the Ukraine? Because that's how connected our world is right now, that things happening on the other side of the planet today are already affecting things, right? That I, that I will be 
sleeping in my home in Philadelphia because we have a, a, an, a, an airline system that allows me to move that quickly between cities. I could be in another country tonight if I needed to be. Uh, you know, it's a seriously connected world, but we haven't prepared people with connected thinking yet. We're still teaching them siloed thinking. We're still thinking of, we're still just starting to discuss interdisciplinary learning, right? We're barely doing it yet when everything's interdisciplinary now. Yeah, that's great. I mean, you're absolutely correct. I mean, but the Dunning-Kruger effect you talk about where somebody learns something and they know everything about it, that applies <laughs> to adults and kids alike. Yes, that's true. <laughs> I, it's true. But, my, but, but I was recently fighting with my teenagers about last night at dinner where they were, where they were arguing with me. And I was, I'm like, you watched one YouTube video. Of course, my wife sometimes goes, do you really know how to fix that sink or do you YouTube know how to fix that <laughs> sink? That's great. So <laughs> let's, let's switch topics a little bit because you talked about silos and uh, breaking the chasms, if you will. You're wearing a T-shirt called Feminist Dad. Yes. Tell me a little bit about what your definition of a feminist dad and why should we care? Yeah, well, so the T-shirt the comes from my, my most recent book, which is called Father Figure, How to Be a Feminist Dad. And the reason that I wrote that book was, I mean, it's, it was a similar idea, um, only not technological. Uh, it was that the, the, there was a, there's a paradigm shift, right? There's, a, there's an enormous shift in how we think about gender, how we think about identity. Um, we're renegotiating a lot of things as a culture, as a society, as a world. And I didn't think that Fathers in particular really knew how to manage that transition. And so what was happening was a lot of reactionary. Uh, you know, it's almost like the world pulled out. We pulled, we, you know, in, in, in trying to get to equality, we've sort of pulled out the foundation from under people's feet and they're just flailing. And so they don't know how to imagine themselves without the old privileges, without the old entitlements, without the old, uh, without, without the old rules. So I wanted to go, hey, here's a way for you to think about what it means. I, I somewhat called it feminist dad because I wanted to be a little bit provocative. I mean, I certainly do identify as a feminist dad, but I wanted, you know, it, it could have been anything. It could have been an, an equitable dad. It could have, but to me, being a feminist just means you're, you're sort of committed to ending any oppression, subjugation, marginalization that's based on gender, right? Um, um, you know, any you want it to end. You want people to be treated equally. Yeah. So again, the societal breaks are important. But let's take a devil's advocate. Yeah. You know, in a, if you think about the European tradition of a family unit, which consider which most people, rightfully or un, unrightfully, I know what you're going to say, uh, <laughs> think that family unit is the basis of country, religion, and nation, and the future of economies how do you how do you reconcile that um, and saying and the fa by family unit what i mean a patriarchal dad a yeah. mother who provides for the family and cooks um, and kids that just are perfect they listen to their dad <laughs> and you know um, eat the food they make yeah well yeah so so i have a lot about this in 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 the book and looking at the history a lot of that history is just false um right a lot of it is a very new industrial age idea it hasn't existed nearly as long as we are told i mean that's how we maintain all things right we pretend they existed since the beginning of time you know i i used to do yoga when i was younger and they're always like this is exactly how people have been doing it for five thousand years i'm like no not not so but i get that you have to 
sell that narrative in order to make it work, and it makes people feel good, and that's all, that's all fine. It's the same, we do the same thing with so many things, right? We say, this is how it's always been. We've been, it's always been this kind of family structure. It hasn't been. There have been, um, you know, there's been polygamous family structures. There's been groups without any uh, nuclear families. We have so much history showing us all the different ways that that's been organized. Um, you know, I'm not saying that our current family structure is bad. I'm just, I mean, it's bad if it, if it is subjugating or oppressing certain people or teaching them ways to live that doesn't prepare them to live in the world where they, where they thrive. But I'm certainly not against anyone living the way they, they want to live, right? I mean, that's the whole point. Unfortunately, many of the ways we do think of that patriarchal family structure have only been serving the patriarchs, right? And there have been a lot of people under the, the, those structures who have been like, you know, it's not so not working for me so well. And so part of what you're what you're doing when you're saying, hey, we have to re-examine it is go, we have to ask ourselves who who's it served, who does it not serve, and how do we rearrange it? The idea that it is sort of the future of state, uh, you, you, said, you said, you know, national state. I mean, you know, I, I talk about this in the, in the book. I have sort of, you, you probably remember this. I have like a history of the American presidents that used family, it starts with Teddy Roosevelt. He's the first one who goes, the, the, the family is the, gonna be the whole thing that's gonna make it, that's gonna make America work. And, um, you know, it, it, it's, there, there's, it's a story, and it's a story that if you like it, great. If it's actually hurting people's ability to be free, really not great. So uh, as we start wrapping this up, uh, how does one become a patriarchal dad, move from being a patriarchal dad to a feminist dad? Is there a recipe or a You, you buy my book? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I mean, I mean look, I, I have a lot, of, a lot of thoughts about it. The, the most important thing, I think, is being willing to look at yourself. I mean, it, it, and it's not just dad. I mean, the book happens to be about being a dad, but it's also how do you not be a patriarchal employer? How do you not be a patriarchal manager? How do you not, right? How do you think about ways of, and, and that doesn't mean you can't be, be a boss. I ran restaurants for years. They need a boss, right, to, to, to operate. But is there a way to boss that's not also, um, you know, hurting others, that's not also oppressing others. Um, um, so you have to be willing to look at the things, the things you take for granted, many of which are the things that serve us, many of which are the things that we organize our identities around and be willing to say about those things, well, what if it's not working? And that's the hardest thing about it is because is there's so much, so much of what I learned about how to be a, a mature man was how to be a patriarchal man, which meant so many things that I spent so much time as a, as a man going, I want to be that, I'm going to keep trying to do that, and that's who I am. I had to stop and go, wait a second, what's left if I let go of that, and what's left if, if I take the things that feel bad about that, is there anything left, and found the things that were left. That's a really hard thing to do, um, um, because you know our identities are what keep us stable and so you know being asking yourself to re-examine your own identity means means inviting a level of uncertainty and instability um, but but I would argue that on the other end of that what you get is way more certainty and and stability great um, thank you Jordan it's been an incredible conversation I know you have a flight to catch in a couple hours I don't want to you to be held up in the Atlanta traffic or the Atlanta airport 
Thank you so much for coming yeah. to N Squared and spending your quality time with us. Does the, do the audience members have any questions for Jordan? I guess not, so big round of applause for Jordan Shapiro. Thank you. Everything is a service. Whether it's finding ways to help students reach their goals within higher education, sharing medical records to patients quickly and securely, informing residential customers of an impending outage, or communicating with remote satellites thousands of miles apart. All of it requires data, integration, and communication. At Intuin, we provide services that make all of these possibilities realities. And we make it faster, simpler, secure, and easier. Because we believe everything is a service, and bringing everything together is how we can help you innovate and change the world.